So this paper is a result of a collaboration over a number of years between Warwick and Bits, both members of the Carter Consortium. Margaret and I uh, work together with people in public health and neurology. Margaret is the lead epidemiologist and myself as the supporting anthropologist. Uh, Regina, <laughs> well, I'm being polite. Uh, Regina was one of the interviewers on the project, went on to a master's in public health. Jean uh, is a Zimbabwean Warwick Medical School graduate, now working as a doctor in UHCW. And Wayne is a resident ecologist who's just acquired his PhD after many years of substantial scientific work at the Bits Royal Facility. So this paper represents uh, capacity building at an institutional and individual level and a multidisciplinary collaboration bringing together, as I said, a number of disciplines. Uh, the setting, oh, different order. So the setting was the uh, Vitz Public, Rural Public Health and Health Transition, Transitions Research Unit, which some of the people here are aware of, that sits um, in a sub-district of Mpumalanga province where there's been an annual census of vital events every year since 1992. Uh, the original um, impetus for this was to make the health of Africans in South Africa under apartheid more visible. And the spatialization of the villages in what was Gazankulu, a Bantustan, um, still consists, the spatial organization of apartheid affects uh, the subsistence agriculture and the labor migration today. So the history, as we've had a paper on history today, is relevant to the present and structures the present and the future. So our study, uh, I wasn't sure of the dates, but I think it was 2001-3, was around uh, how the community thought about stroke. And it was sort of in the northeast corner of South Africa, close to Mozambique. And it's called the Low Felt, and I'm not sure if it's dry savanna or not. Uh, who talked about dry savanna a couple of papers ago? But anyway, it's uh, people have... They carry out subsistence agriculture on land that is too small to sustain families because that was the basis of creating Bantustans as reservoirs of labor. So people still carry out migrant labor in the mines, in the tourist lodges of the Kruger National Park, which is nearby, um, and in Johannesburg. So you have um, a community in these 21 villages where there's a census which has children, um, older men and women, and a paucity of young women and young men. So there are a number of methods here. Uh, Wayne, the ecologist, in the annual census, had a food security module that was administered in 2004 and then again in 2007, but we're only looking at 2004, to 21 villages where there were 11,724 respondent households. Now, the households in this area, in these villages, are both South African or are mixed villages which are, have, are South Africans and permanent residents who are um, Mozambican refugees, at one time refugees. Um, so there was a migration owing to the Civil War. And then there are some unrecognized villages which are almost totally Mozambican and have less infrastructure. So uh, as part of our study on stroke, in addition to this food security novel uh, module, I wish it was a novel, uh, <laughs> we, we did a, a study called SASPI, which looked at um, how people thought about stroke and the incidence of stroke. And within that, we did some rapid ethnographic assessment in six villages, which involved interviewing people, doing health walks, doing mapping. Um, I'm not going to go into the details methodologically. But we then subsequently did 
asked Regina to do some additional interviews on household nutrition and strategies for food security, primarily triggered by an interest in the high level of salt in the diet, which again I'm not going to talk about because you're going to hear all about salt from Franco. And then Jean, as part of her undergraduate research scholarship, did a literature review on nutrition and livelihoods. So the drivers of food insecurity, as other people have pointed out uh, when they've talked about climate change, and indeed um, Mebs when he's um, talked about climate change and global warming and coral reefs, are indicated in the literature again and again to be around poverty, absence of property rights, in this case the way land is allocated and owned, poor market access, ill health, impacting catastrophically on households, all types of different ill health, lack of employment, this was an area of high unemployment, um, and climate change. Now, the approach that, um, that I think suits food security is what we call sustainable livelihoods, both of individuals but sustainable livelihood systems. And the term that's used increasingly is resilience, which you've heard from Lenore and Mebs, um, and it's very, uh, ecologists are very fond of it because you can apply it, can't you, environmentally, but you can apply it to an individual. Psychologists are fond of it. You talk about individual resilience. And other social scientists quite like it because you can talk about it at a household level and institutionally. So there's a socio-ecological um, field which is large about the interface between the environment and social institutions, including governance in terms of resilience. Um, so shocks to household livelihood, again, are things that everybody has uh, talked about. Um, but what becomes patently clear is that it's, in order to be sustainable or resilient, you must have diversification. And that it helps if you have very strong social networks that are adaptable, can draw on a large number of people in different places, maybe spatially separated. And if there are state social grants, that's also a very good cushioning. Um, and that people through their lifetime obviously have to adapt and have to, to rapidly changing circumstances, not just climate, but often health. So the literature review, uh, again, indicated that though maize is still a staple, it is becoming more refined and is often bought ready ground rather than grown with increasing urbanization. There's an increasing, from a health point of view, use of fats, oils and sugar and tea and soft drinks are becoming more common. And there's the cultivation of what we in the North would call European vegetables, but still traditional, uncultivated wild um, plants are important. And this was Wayne's interest. What he wanted to know was to what extent collecting food from, gathering food from the wild was providing a, a, um, an additional ad uh, strategy. So from the food security module, 100% of, of all these households reported that their land was not uh, uh, adequate for growing, for sort of supporting their households, which is reflecting the structure that was set up during apartheid. Just getting to the requisite page for more. Okay. And 34% of households reported a lack of food in the last month, giving the reasons as lack of land, lack of water, and lack of labor. Now, this is not catastrophic famine, and this is um, northeast South Africa, which is relatively prosperous compared to many other areas in sub-Saharan Africa. So 12% um, reported that there was a lack of food often or very often. That's between 8 to 30 days of the month. And 20% reported that this was sometimes 2 to 7 days. 
and 2% rarely. But only 1.4% of these households reported having any food aid. So it's an area where there was very, very little food aid. Uh, the staples that will be grown were... Uh, the staple foods were maize, rice, and bread, with potatoes being much less common. Um, and uh, the crops seemed to be peanuts, groundnuts, cassava, sweet potatoes, pumpkins, greens, mangoes, and watermelons. And the food gathered from uh, the wild, uh, Margaret told me to change herbs, and I missed this one, were uh, plants at all times of the year. So the more, over 5,000 households, that's almost 50%, gathered wild plants on a weekly basis. Um, a lot reported gathering um, uh, seasonal fruit like marula, uh, which is used to make um, actually quite a delicious home brew. Um, and there was also the gathering of seasonal insects. Now, mopani worms, which I looked up and discovered, were caterpillars of the adult emperor moth, were, uh, are considered a delicacy and were often collected and were a source of protein, and flying ants and locusts at particular times of year, of, of year. So from interviews, women reported, obviously, that owing to climate, um, when they didn't have vegetables growing on their plots, and they, often, they also had communal gardens, which supplemented their own particular household. Uh, but they reported that when there were no vegetables from no rain, they would, generally, they would uh, eat pap with beans. They repeatedly reported the importance of wild food, and uh, informal traders, women selling bananas, knickknacks, little snacks for children at school, uh, or a few tomatoes when they had them, reported the importance of informal trading as uh, strategies. Uh, this group of young men in a football team were very clear that uh, people were, they, they were eating less of an African diet and putting in more sugar and uh, wanting jam. Okay, um, so here we have a statement. Now, oh, this is what I wanted to say. Because uh, of the shortage of time, the interviews were in two villages, a recognized village and an unrecognized village. And there were interviews with households that had high assets as well as low assets. Now, because of the shortage of time, I'm not going to talk at length about high asset households, other than to say that they always had people in employment, often more than one, and they often had state social grants. So I'll give a brief example of a household where there was a grandmother who'd had a stroke and she had a pension as a South African citizen and her daughter worked in the Kruger National Park in one of the lodges. And she had two grandchildren living, going to school, and one of them had a baby. Uh, okay, that would be called, you know, she had multiple livelihood strategies. There was enough money coming to the house regularly for food security. Two years on, her daughter had been killed in a fire in Kruger, and she was very close to dying, and she was clear that once the pension wasn't coming into the household, her grandchildren were going to be at risk. So you can see what I, I think I'm trying to say is the fragility of the food security can flip any time with catastrophic illness, with death, or with drought. So that's why it has to be multiple. I'm going to show you the complexity of two households, so I'll just paraphrase. So this is um, a woman who, went while she was being interviewed, somebody came by and bought a packet of peanuts from her on credit. Uh, so she was selling peanuts from the home. She says, you know, 
we check what we're going to eat when the sun rises, um, and I'll cook what's available. I may go and ask for credit uh, if I don't have any money. I am the mother, and I cook for 10 people. We cook once a day. Um, and we often cook soft porridge. And then she continues that the father of the house works as a builder and may eat when he's out at work, and that her children eat at school. And in, at the current context, there was a big school meal program going on, by the, given by the, the province. And she listed what they ate. So on Mondays, they eat soft porridge. On Tuesdays, they eat pap with cabbage, she asked them. Wednesday, samp, grains made from corn. Uh, Friday, they eat bread and juice. Um, and the children complain that the soft porridge at school has no sugar. So again, there is a house, you know, a, a scheme which is providing um, a basic level of security to the children through providing school meals in the way that we have here or we used to have with milk. Um, and then she talks about the fact that she will go and buy a small amount on credit. We don't buy a lot on credit. We take very little because there's no one who's working straight, meaning no one who's working full time. So a cautious, sophisticated, multiple livelihood strategy in this unrecognized village where people don't have social grants, because a lot of them, because they're not citizens or they may not have the paperwork. There was a court case while we worked which allowed permanent residents to get social grants in the forms of pensions and disability grants, but it's still hard to claim them. This is another young woman who uh, describes how her mother died last year. Um, the sun rises many times without us having food to eat. I force myself to go and ask my aunt for food, and they give me beans sometimes. The problem is the one who is present and who used to think about that today my children don't have food and I must do something is my mother, and after she left us, she left me alone, and I have to know everything. Then she goes on to say to describe how her aunt put together food for her at Christmas. Still uncorrected. This is the old version of the presentation. I did correct a version and send it, never mind. Uh, and that her aunts, who may be what we call fictive kinship, women in the neighborhood, not necessarily blood aunts, uh, bring small containers of rice to us, uh, which makes us feel better as well as the food because they, we know they want to help us. Um, we never say we're waiting for our brother who will buy us food or an uncle who will buy for us. We just find at times someone arriving and saying, I'm here to greet you. I'm giving you 10 rand to buy some bread. And then she says at the end, it doesn't happen that we go to sleep without eating. Right? So again, you know, she's got a multiple um, network. She, she's, she's making ends meet. She's one of those people who reports that she's thinking too much. She's worried, which is the phrase used for being stressed about how to feed her children, but she has uh, people around her in a social network. So uh, I think that people are very sophisticated in the way they have resilient multiple livelihood strategies. And as, um, as one of the, the women in this uh, unrecognized village said, this is our life. We help each other when one runs out of food and does not have money to buy food yet. You send a child to go and borrow, and you return it back when you have some and if you fail to give in return, then no one wants to borrow from you again. So it takes us back to really very basic anthropology of reciprocity and what we call the gift and chains of giving, which here is expressed in a local way, but is linked to global chain, chains of care, really. Um, 
and the consciousness that if you've got enough for today, that it's fleeting. You've got to be careful for tomorrow. And the only way you can do that is by um, giving when you have and receiving when you haven't. So that's what we learned from this, this study. Thank you.